let's keep going. First Peter, if you got a Bible, turn there. If you're using one of ours, it's on page 588 or 589, one of, those, one of those two, one of the blue Bibles from the communion tables. We are continuing in our summer series called A Sojourner's Guide, all right? Uh, a Sojourner's Guide, it's just a study of First Peter. We've been in here several weeks. Hey, does Columbia play today? Are they today? When are they? Who do they play? I hate England. I hope Columbia just, I'm just kidding. I love England, but I hope Columbia wins. Um, go Columbia. We have some Columbia fans in here. Shout out. They're doing great. They made it to the round of 16. Is anyone else watching the World Cup? I'm kind of. Okay. Anyway, First Peter chapter 3, Sojourner's Guide. So we've been in this back to sermon, Joshua, focus. Um, all right. We've been in this series called A Sojourner's Guide, and we're using that word. A sojourner is someone who stays somewhere temporarily, all right? They're staying in a place that's not their permanent place of residency. And, and Peter is writing to a group of people um, in, in a location that is now modern-day Turkey. And uh, it's, it's multiple groups of people. And he's going, hey, you believe in Jesus. You identify as a follower of Jesus. And if you find yourself in a culture that doesn't necessarily affirm or encourage or cheer on your faith, and in fact, maybe you find yourself um, being persecuted, whether physically or ostracized in the social settings, the awkward stares, you find yourself feeling like this can't be it. This cannot be <laughs> like as good as it gets with life with God. Peter's gonna go, it's not. This is temporary. Keep your eyes on heaven. There is an imperishable, undefiled, perfect, beautiful gift, the salvation of your soul. One day, the kingdom of heaven will be our only reality, and you will be there, and it'll be perfect. But until then, it's okay that you're uncomfortable. This is temporary. And then Peter's going to help them posture their lives. Hey, this is what it looks like to posture your life if you identify as a follower of Jesus in a culture that may not necessarily affirm or encourage that belief. So if you've ever found yourself going, it's a weird fit for me to follow Jesus and exist in this day and age, this is a really good letter for you, okay? It's gonna make a lot of sense. So um, we've been talking, last week we talked about, you know, how will we use our freedom that we've been given. It was a really liberating conversation, just kind of the sentiment of, man, wherever you are, if there is someone around you, God has given you this like power uh, to impact them for the sake of the gospel, that anyone around you, whether it's from the bottom up or the top down, they can come to know Jesus and how you posture your life. It's just like really cool that God wants to use each and every one of us. This week will be called the posture of Christ. The posture of Christ. If you notice on your seats today, there are sheets of paper. I made them myself. And you can tell. <laughs> and uh, I'm not even sure if this is going to interact with the teaching very well, but we'll get to that in a little bit. You can ignore it. You can look at it, but that'll be like second half of the teaching, all right? Um, but I was really proud. It's a pages document. I did what I could. Okay, um, so we'll get to that. But we're going to look at the posture of Christ today, and I want to start with just reading First Peter 3, 8 through 18, then we'll get into what the teaching's got for us, okay? So First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Hopefully, I think we'll have it on the screen, too, if you don't have a Bible. It's a lot of words, so it can be helpful to read along on a screen. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you, even if you are zealous, or sorry, if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You know, there's been this theme uh, in the past few weeks of like posturing our lives with gentleness and respect while maintaining holiness. And uh, today I want to spend our first half kind of looking at Jesus specifically. Um, Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus, and um, I think a lot of this is obviously informed by the way Jesus lived his life. And so um, I want to read this, this, ver- this uh, passage out of John chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. Uh, I know we're doing a lot of reading. I love you. We can do this together. It's okay if you're ADD. Me too. Verse 14 says, and the word, Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory, of the, uh, glory as of the only Son from the Father. I want you to listen to this. Jesus, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I want to talk about this posture of grace and truth that Jesus walked in. But before talking about the grace and truth Jesus walked in, I want to spend some time talking about what that means we don't do, all right? I don't know if you've ever had a thing in your life where you were learning about it, and the best way for you to begin learning about it was to first learn what not to do as opposed to what to do. You know, sometimes knowing what not to do helps you understand how to do something, if that makes any sense at all. Let me give an example. It's not a good one. It's kind of a tangent. I enjoyed it. So have you ever been in the parking lot where there was like those, um, you know, those like concrete slabs? I don't know what the words are, but they keep your car from going too far in the parking space. Oftentimes they're like an inch too high and you hear your fender go, you know, and it, you know what I'm talking about right now? The parking thing, the parking thing, the parking thing. As a kid, did you ever used to like walk on those and try to balance? Did anyone ever do that? Can you raise your hand? I want to know how often this happened. Yeah, okay. Well, everyone was being all bashful and I thought I was giving a bad example. We've all done it. All right. Don't ask me why I thought about this, but I I remember going to these, this is all going to connect, kind of. I remember going to these Cirque du Soleil uh, performances. You know what Cirque du Soleil is? Okay, Cirque du Soleil is, quite frankly, phenomenal, all right? These people do crazy things. If you've ever been to a circus and seen someone, like, throw batons of fire and juggle them, and you're like, wow, Cirque du Soleil makes that look like child's play, okay? Cirque du Soleil like way better. It's like circus on steroids. Anyway, these people are really talented, and one of the acts that stuck out to me so much was this girl would get on this bicycle, and she would ride this tight, this, not even tight rope, this tight wire, very thin, like I could barely see it from where I was sitting, and she would ride her bike across the whole stage, and I was like, man, that's got to be so hard. Like, what is the key to having that kind of balance? Like, let's say I'm not, but let's say I'm an aspiring gymnast who wants to eventually ride a bike across a tight wire. How would one go about it? And I feel like for me, I don't know about you, the most important step would first and foremost be what not to do, and the what not to do is don't look down, because that will ruin everything for all of your dreams that you had of riding a bike across a tight wire, right? Because when you're in a parking lot 
and you're walking on the parking thing, your consequence is three inches from the ground, right? I got three inches of consequence. That's not a lot of consequence here. At worst, I'll twist my ankle, and that would be a shame because who twists their ankle walking on a parking lot thing? But that's my worst consequence, right? But the minute you've got some actual distance between you and the ground, everything changes, right? I'm like, I can do that across this when the concrete's right there, but if you put me like, I don't know, over a canyon, that's gonna freak me out. The minute I look down, I'm like, okay, sweaty palms, sweaty feet, I'm shaky, I'm nervous. I really went far on this. I looked up on WikiHow, W-I-K-I how, what are the steps if you wanna be good at balancing on things, okay? First step was warm up. I wasn't planning on talking about that, but that was the first step I wanted to include you in. You need to stretch. That was literally the step. I was like, okay, if I want to balance on a balance beam, I need to stretch first. It's a good word. Second one was take off your shoes. That also doesn't matter here. Third thing was get on the beam. I expected that. Fourth thing was find something ahead of you that you can concentrate on. And I went, aha, I knew it. I knew looking down was bad. You got to find something up there. My next step would be don't look down, then find something, because the minute I look down, his fear sets in, and I, I no longer have a chance at being in the Cirque du Soleil. All of that, that whole thing was just to tell you, sometimes it's easier when you know what not to do when you're trying to do something. Was it worth it? No. To tell you that? No. I think you got it like six minutes ago, but we're friends. We love each other and our strengths and weaknesses. There was a weakness. All right. So, if the thing we're looking at to go across this metaphorical balance beam is Jesus' posture of grace and truth, I want to spend some time talking about what we shouldn't do. If we want to aim at a posture of grace and truth, what are the things we should avoid doing? And those two words are being a people that posture ourselves with a conquering or a compromising mindset. Wink, wink, look at your handout. That's where you'll see that language, Okay. So if we want to have the posture of Jesus, we do not need to be a people that seek to conquer or to compromise in our faith journey. And I want to elaborate a little bit on this. I hope this is helpful. So when I say conquer, you know, I mean like, like uh, assert our dominance to like be on the right side, and I'll flesh this out a little bit. But before we even get there, if we're going to be a people that don't conquer, we must understand first that Jesus has conquered, okay? Jesus is the conqueror. And it was in the battle against sin and death. And he has conquered that. Ephesians 6, I've referenced this like a few times in the past few weeks, says, our battle, our war, our tensions are not with flesh and blood, but in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realities. And Jesus went to war there, and he has won that war. So we do not have to be warriors in that sense. We do not have to conquer sin and death. Jesus has conquered that. And since sin and death has been conquered by Jesus, this really affects the posture in which we walk in this world. We are a people of grace, not a people of conquering. Let me give you some examples from Jesus' life himself. There's a moment in Luke 9 where Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem with a squad, all right? His disciples is what the Bible would call that. New Living Translation, the, the squad. And uh, they're, they're going to Jerusalem. And uh, they're trying to buy, go through this Samaritan village. And for whatever reason, the Samaritan village hears that they are going to Jerusalem. And there's some racial tension there. There's some cultural tension. And they basically just tell Jesus and his disciples, you can't come through here. I don't know what that conversation was like. I don't know if they met them at the, the, the border where it said, hey, welcome to this Samaritan village. And they were just standing there going, you cannot walk through here. I don't know. I do know the disciples were super aggravated by the Samaritan's audacity to deny Jesus' entrance. And so in their grace and humility, they said, Jesus, 
we should call down fire from heaven on the entire village. That'll show them. I bet Jesus sat there and been like, after all the teachings and all the healings and all the pictures of God's heart, the parables, even the prodigal son didn't get you. You want to call down fire right now? That's where you're at in this journey with me, right? He's like, I don't know what must have went through his mind when they were like, hey, Jesus, you're the son of God. You're the king of kings. Let's show them what's really going down, what's really popping with your truth. Like, you are the king. Let's show them what's going on. Other cities will see the fire. They'll hear about it. They'll be like, whoa, something's real. I don't know. Jesus, I don't see his words in Luke 9. It simply says that he rebukes them. He rebukes his own disciples for even having the thought of calling down fire from heaven to conquer in that way. Jesus rebukes them. There's another moment where, you know, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, you, you notice this tension all the time that Jesus has with the religious elite. And aren't those the funnest people to pick on? Like, it's just fun to pick on them, right? Because Jesus did it first, kind of, you know? There were Pharisees that knew the word, that were about the temple, but were arrogant and prideful and missed out on the heart of God. And Jesus is so often, like, challenging them and frustrating them, and he can't get through to them. Yet in this moment in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, this Pharisee, approaches Jesus with honest questions. And Jesus doesn't use his, this moment to go, see, I told you, or to point out how wrong he was. Instead, he has a conversation with Nicodemus, this Pharisee. It's actually where the most popular verse like ever comes from, John 3, 16. We all know that. Maybe, maybe you don't. It's okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his only. Yeah, I mean, you get it. If you didn't know the verse, you've heard the ver- of John 3, 16, right? That comes in this conversation with Nicodemus. Like, if there was ever a demographic for Jesus to conquer, to like have no time for, to be hostile toward, it was this guy, this Nicodemus guy. Like, no, Nicodemus, you had the scriptures, you missed the boat. Yet Jesus postures himself in this way and, and, and shows the truth of who God is to Nicodemus. Acts 15 says that multiple Pharisees come to believe in Jesus. The people that I was so ready to count out and wash my hands of, people that claimed to know God but were cold and distant, Jesus had room for. The centurion servant in Luke 7, uh, there's a servant that, that uh, is a servant to a centurion soldier, uh, the, the Roman Empire, their soldiers, the ones oppressing the Jewish people. A centurion comes before Jesus asking for healing for his servant. Jesus heals him. He has time for him. Jesus did not take a posture of conquering uh, when someone came to him with a posture of open heart. So therefore, we should not have this posture of conquering others. When the soul is the goal, no one wins when we take a posture of asserting our dominance over others, over proving our point. In the social media age that we get caught up in, there are so many just like heated, all caps, hostile, yelling conversations. And no matter like, whether you want to be or not, you feel yourself living in this tension of being on the right or the wrong side, not being sure where that side is, or being so sure of it you have no time for people on the other side. Like it's a, it's a hostile time. It's like as people of God, we should really be people that avoid the impulse to always speak first or to prove how right we are, to assert our dominance It's like, as people of God, how are we going to operate at this point in time in our culture? Will we be a people that actually process what other people have to say? Will we listen? Will we imagine what it's like to be in their shoes, to grow up the way they grew up, to have the beliefs that they have, and and try to understand? Because so often, when you'll take like the two minutes to not start typing back or to not start speaking, and instead to think and to contemplate, and even to ask yourself, do I love the person I'm talking to? It's amazing the posture you'll step into. As people of God, I think this is necessary. I think it's easy to overlook 
the potential in this moment for us to just wreak the goodness of God. In a culture where everyone's talking, and, and honestly, a lot of lines are being opened, and even though there's some hostility, there is a lot of communication, which is a way to see the glass half full. You know, a lot of people are talking to each other. It's like, we have a chance to live in such a posture, in such a gentleness and respect, that it reeks of the goodness of Jesus, that it testifies to the character of God. I think it's somewhat what Peter's getting at. I need to turn back to 1 Peter. So may we not take a posture of conquering, but also, let's not be a people that compromise. Man, Jesus' truth was so clear, the way he lived. He comes saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, okay? That was not a parable. We don't need a lot of interpretation there. Jesus is going, I am the dude. Like, okay, no, that's not what he's saying. That's, that's way too casual, no. He's saying he's the truth, the sent one from God himself. He is both fully God and fully man. He has been sent to save the world. He is the truth, the way, the life, the way to God is through Jesus. He said that very clearly. He shows up saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That repent word, like change your mind, turn from your ways. The kingdom of God is near, like wink, wink. It's here, it's me. I am bringing the kingdom of God in your presence. He's clear in that. There's a moment where he is talking to this, this, uh, this man. It's, I guess, notoriously the story of the rich young ruler. And this guy who is pretty religious, like knows the commandments of God, basically just says, what do I gotta do to get eternal life with you? Like, how do I do this? And Jesus sees a moment, a place in his life that is preventing him from fully embracing the kingdom of God. And he says, sell everything. Just give it all away and follow me and you'll get what you're looking for. Just follow after me. And the man walks away sad. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't go, okay, okay, okay. 80%. Like, give me 80 and we're good. Okay, 30. 6%. It's only 6%. You basically get to keep up. He doesn't do that, right? The man walks away and Jesus goes, okay. Like, he stood on his truth. Maybe that didn't connect. I don't know. I thought that would go better. Luke 10, Jesus sends out disciples to go and proclaim that the kingdom of God was near to villages. Go knock on doors, proclaim peace. And you know what he says? And when they reject you, do this. He's like, I already got a rejection plan. You don't got to negotiate. You don't got to change what you're saying. You don't got to dumb down who I'm saying I am. When you get rejected, dust yourself off. Keep moving. Really interesting. Jesus does not ask us to dull the truth or to compromise the hope that's been given to us in Jesus uh, chapter 3, verse 15 in 1 Peter says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Some takeaways for us, that truth does not shift or change with our posture. Um, we're going to have conversations, different kinds of conversations with different kinds of people, but the truth does not change. Our posture might. Our tone might. You know, we talk to certain people different ways but the truth does not change. It does not hide, especially when the truth brings about the liberation of a human soul. Um, I just wanna remind us that believing in Jesus, and sometimes this will bring to the surface, do I actually believe this about Jesus? But I believe that belief in Jesus is like the meaning of life. It's like the thing. Like when you found Jesus, look no longer. You found the thing. You found a grace at its greatest. You found forgiveness and patience and peace. Like everything your soul was created to long for is found in Jesus. That is a good thing. I don't know if you've ever felt the tension in our culture to figure out how to like talk about Jesus without stepping on toes. Let the baseline of your understanding be that Jesus is the hope of the world and that every heart was made to know him. 
This is good news. We don't have to hide that. Peter is not asking you to apologize for your belief in the goodness and reality of Jesus. You don't gotta say you're sorry. It's all right. Like, you gotta say you're sorry when you're arrogant and you're prideful and you bash people over the head with what you believe. Like, that's when you need to say you're sorry. When you don't think time to listen, to humble yourself, like, apologize for that. But you don't have to apologize for believing in Jesus. It's cool. It's actually great. Jesus is great news. Like, I don't know what your experience has been like with church, but when you read the scriptures, Jesus is amazing. Like, he gets it. He's doing good things, okay? That's good. Don't apologize. Quit saying sorry. You probably weren't. Verse 15 says, always be prepared. There's this quote that says, preach the gospel in every situation, and when necessary, use your words. I remember hearing that quote and just being like, oof, my life, my life is a sermon, and I don't even got to use words most of the time because people just see it, and they're like, that is pointing to the scriptures. Like, they just get it, right? It's this beautiful sentiment, and I love what the sentiment is getting after, right? It's like, hey, let your life really live into gospel ways. Like, let it reek of the actions and the ways of Jesus. The issue I have with that quote is Jesus didn't quite live into that, right? He preached the gospel in every situation and pretty often said things. Like, he used a lot of words. He was like, hey, the way to the Father. Nicodemus, God loved the world so much, he sent me. Believe in me, have everlasting life. This is good news. You saw some things I did, now I'm making it plain to you the story of the gospel, right? It's like, we don't have to be bashful with our words. There are ways to testify of the goodness of God, and verse 15 would even say to be prepared to do so. So this is not a conversation about neutering our willingness to testify to the goodness of God and the hope that is in you. So may we not be a people that seek to assert our dominance or to prove how right we are. Let's not conquer people, but also let's not be a people that compromise. Like, it's okay. In fact, it's the best news ever that you have laid your hands on the greatest hope, and that is the hope that is in you in Jesus Christ. He is the hope of the world. So if you're not taking a posture of conquering or compromise, let's take the posture of Christ. Why is Peter saying all this? Where does he get these words from? You know, it keeps hitting me. Have you ever been in a moment in a conversation with friends, and one friend says something to another friend that's like hurtful, and everyone knows it, and it gets super awkward. In those moments, I'm a feeler, kind of a discerner, maybe. Those moments terrify me, right? When there's like a moment where someone says something to hurt someone's feelings, and I'm very aware, and my hands start sweating, my feet start sweating, my knees start sweating. I'm sweating profusely, because I'm like, oh my gosh, he just said that. How's she gonna respond? How's he gonna respond? Oh my goodness, like, I'm so aware. I'm like looking at their eyebrows and their eyes and their mouth, like everything that's moving in their face, like, okay, you look a little nervous. You're hurt, they're hurt. I can see it, I can tell because of what you said. We all feel it, right? I don't know if you're like that. I become hyper aware and I'm just very aware of how people are responding and what they're saying. And it hit me, like, Peter is writing all of this after three years of walking so closely with Jesus. Like, I often just say, oh, he just heard Jesus teach. No, he watched Jesus do literally all of it. So when the Pharisees were like, do you know how Jesus cast out demons? Because he has a demon. Peter got to go, all right, now that's crazy, Jesus. They just said you have a demon. How are you reacting? How are you responding? He got to see all of it from the front row. When they came and arrested Jesus, and Jesus said, put away your sword. Like, that's not how this is gonna work. Peter got to watch every single moment. And I'm like, we're reading from a guy who not only is like led by the Holy Spirit, but if Jesus had to name his BFF, like if he had that language in Koine Greek, it would be Peter, or Kephas, or whatever his name is in Greek. Anyway, that's who it would be. Peter is like Jesus' like right, like right-hand guy. He's writing all of this. 
this, this posture of grace and truth after doing life with Jesus. And he says in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He goes, I watched Jesus. I watched him take on this posture of grace and of truth, not conquering, but not compromising. I watched him do all of this. There is no one righteous except for one. I watched him, and the reason he postured his life like this was so that I could know God, was so that you could know God, was so the world can know God. This whole conversation is not about sin management or being nice people. It's that people will come to know God if the people of God posture themselves after Jesus Christ postured himself. When we take on the posture of Jesus, both in word and deed, people will come to know God. This whole book is about this. Being gentle, respectful, but holy. Being prepared to testify of the goodness of God. And so I wanted to leave us some time to reflect on our own. We're gonna put some questions on the screen. Whoever's doing slides, you can throw on the questions. Um, just ask a few questions, because I feel like this has been the theme for a while, and we can only go so far if the format is, I teach, you listen, it was good or bad, and we, we get out of here, right? The whole hope of this is that we can wrestle with the text. I believe that right here, right now, as you sit here at 11, probably 43-ish a.m. in the morning, don't check, it was wrong, um, <laughs> as you sit here, like that God truly will work in your heart through his word. Sometimes it'll just fall on your lap and you'll be like, God is speaking right now. And sometimes it takes kind of a mutual. Like, if you'll, if you'll take a step, God will minister to your heart. And so I wanna give us a chance to allow this passage just to speak to us. So the first question I have for you, where are some relationships that you need to seek and pursue peace in? So I read First Peter 3 at the very beginning and then really never revisited it. That's, that's the handout. In verse 12 of chapter three, or no, verse 11, it says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. I've never thought about peace that way. Peace to me was like something that, that kind of arrived at your front door if you postured yourself the right way. But this says seek peace and pursue it. I just want to ask you, is there relationships in your life where frankly you just, you need to pursue peace? You don't need to wait it out. Like you need to pursue peace. And this might be someone that you know Maybe some hostility there, some tension there that you just need to posture your heart and pray for them. Maybe you need to have a conversation. And maybe this is someone you don't know, but from a distance. Maybe it's an authority figure or someone on social media, and you're like, I hate them. They are the bane of my existence. I cannot stand them. Like, I don't know what this is going to touch on in your heart. But there may be a place in your life where you need to seek and pursue peace, to pray for them, to have compassion and to love them. I'll leave that for your discernment. Secondly, where has God given you the opportunity to speak of the hope that is in you? The story of the gospel, Jesus coming into the world and calling disciples, saying, come and follow me, showing them you play a part in the kingdom of God advancing. That's the DNA of the gospel, is that it's a team sport. We all get to be involved. And God right now is ready and willing to use you in your context. I don't know if you know that or not, but the Holy Spirit is in you if you believe in Jesus and is ready and willing to move through you. So take some time to reflect. Where is there a space, a place in your life where you're at so often, and you have relationships, and God has just given you an open door to testify of the hope that is in you, of the goodness of Jesus. Reflect on that. Three is kind of like the, hey, if one or two didn't really grab you. Is there a verse or section of 1 Peter 3 that sticks out to you? 
just take some time to meditate on it, to reflect. I've had moments where reading large chunks of scripture is super helpful, like just a large intake, like reading like six chapters and just like kind of washes over me. But I've had other moments where like one word or one phrase, I'm like, I just need to repeat that. I don't need to critically think about it. I just need to let that word or that verse just hit my heart over and over and over again. So maybe an example of that would be like verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him turn away from evil and do good and then slowing it down and just over and over again reflecting on it. I don't know how you process. So do you, but meditate on the scriptures. The whole point of this, obviously, is just to invite you to engage with God wherever you're at. I believe if you came here and go, I don't really even identify as a follower of Jesus, I think there's something for you here if you'll go for it and just listen to your heart and see if God isn't speaking to you right now. So I'm gonna leave like five minutes to you just to personally reflect, okay? For some of you, this will be like 50 minutes because when's the last time you were in church and someone said, hey, just talk to God for a little bit? You know, it's a, it's a weird thought in that voice. I don't know what that voice was. <laughs> hey, hey, <laughs> God. Um, no, um, but in this next five minutes, you can go stand in the back. You can go outside. You can sit here, close your eyes. Do whatever you wanna do, but just know that right now there's an invitation for you to take a step toward God and to actively wrestle with some of these questions. Write down something that comes to your mind so that you can take this with you throughout the week. In about five minutes, I'll come back up and dismiss us to communion. Um, at, that point, at that point, if you're still reflecting, keep reflecting. This is your space. I like to say like, it's like your living room. Be at home here and just uh, receive the chance to go after the Lord and we get to do it together. I'm gonna pray. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for this word. You, you talk about this. You say, hey, the, the foolish man he hears my teachings, but he goes away and, and doesn't apply them. That's like building a house on sand. And when the storms come, the house falls. But the wise man, he hears my teachings, and he puts them to use. He obeys them. That man is like building his house on a foundation, a rock. So when the storms come, the house stands. And God, we've heard your teachings today. We've heard your word. No matter how good or bad my teaching was, your scripture's there. Help us be a people that take this word and apply it so that we can be people of wisdom. Um, love you. Will you lead us in this time? In Jesus' name, amen.